The American History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 17, Slavery in Antebellum America. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. I know I promised um, that I would be giving you guys two bonus episodes or bonus topics. One was the California Gold Rush, and the other was going to be on the Tet Offensive during the Vietnam War. I'm going to have to put those on the back burner for the time being. Now, I really hate doing that, um, but I will be covering Tet when I do a season on the Vietnam War, which I keep promising, and I don't know exactly if that's going to be season four or season five or something. But we're going to do a season on the Vietnam War. So I figured, what's the point in doing Tet? Um, the other thing is, as for the California Gold Rush, I will do that at some point, hopefully this year. But right now, I really want to get through this season first. So I felt like it would just be best for us to put that one on the back burner as well. Now, I will say, for this episode, just like the previous episode, it is a bit longer um, then I intended to make it. Now, I apologize for that, but I got a little carried away with the narrative, and um, just I just thought there was too much important stuff here to simply stop. So hopefully you will enjoy this one as much as I enjoyed writing it and researching it, and um, let's get started. Okay, so first of all, let's talk for a moment about the product that really led to the rise of slavery in the 19th century. And that product, of course, was cotton. In general, prior to 1793 and the invention of the cotton gin by Eli Whitney, the southern economy was, to some extent, somewhat weak. Prices were down, the products that were being made weren't exactly all that remarkable, and the economy was based on a risky system of slaves. Thomas Jefferson himself ended up freeing 10% of his slaves and he was convinced that slavery would eventually die out in the South. Now, he wasn't the only one. Um, it had, If you're not aware of it, slavery did exist in the North as well, and it was being phased out. It was just no longer economically viable there. And so Jefferson, along with many other people in the South, felt that was the way the South was going to go. However, 1793 was a pivotal year. This was the year that Eli Whitney invented the cotton gin. Now, there is some question as to whether Whitney deserves the credit, but for our sake, we're just going to say he's the inventor and move on. Um, he does file a patent for the invention late in 1793, and it was granted in March 1794. However, the patent wasn't validated until 1807. And so in the meantime, this invention, it does make cotton production profitable, as it was about 50 times more effective um, than if you cleaned the cotton by hand. And so, as a result of this, there's going to be an explosion in slavery and in cotton growing. In fact, cotton comes to surpass tobacco, rice, and indigo production in the South. Now, a second result was the growth of the so-called Cotton Kingdom, a huge agricultural industry devoted to the growing and the production of cotton. This led to Western expansion um, on the part of the United States, going into the lower Gulf states of Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. Settlers moving into these areas 
brought slaves with them in order to help cultivate cotton. And thus, even though the, important, the importation of slaves into the United States was outlawed in 1808, a huge domestic slave trade emerges. And of course, slaves were still imported, albeit illegally. Now, I want to take a moment here. Um, yes, slavery was outlawed in 1808 in the United States. But if we believe that people automatically just follow the law, I think we're a little naive. Um, you know, it's illegal in the United States to drink under 21, but I assure you, there are plenty of people who are ignoring that law. There's plenty of people who ignore speed limit laws. Well, slavery was no different. Now, cotton was not simply grown in the South and consumed there. It was exported to England, and the revenues from the sale of cotton was then used to produce or to purchase northern goods. Britain or the, Britain, the British textile industry was heavily dependent on American cotton for its textile factories. In fact, 80% of the cotton needed for these early factories in the Industrial Revolution, it came from the United States. Furthermore, prosperity in both the North and the South rested on slave labor. Cotton was extremely important to the American economy, um, as evidenced by the fact that 50%, 57% of American exports by the year 1860 were cotton. Finally, the South produced 75% of the world's cotton on the eve of the American Civil War. Now, when it comes to the South, many are guilty of lumping what was essentially three different regions into one large one. Having said that, we can make some generalizations about these three different areas. Number one, the further north one goes, the cooler the climate and the fewer slaves that you would have encountered. Thus, there was a lower commitment in those areas to maintaining slavery. The second, the further south one went, the warmer the climate, and of course, there were more slaves. Here, the commitment to maintaining slavery was also stronger. And then finally, the third region, um, the mountain areas of Appalachia. Um, here, whites were far less committed to slavery than they were in other regions of the south, and these areas were in western Virginia, eastern Tennessee, northeastern Kentucky, western South Carolina, northern Georgia, and northern Alabama. So as, as you can see, the idea of a, quote, unified South is quite incorrect. It was really a diverse area. All right, so let's break this down a little more formally, okay? First, let's look at the border states, or the so-called border states. These were Delaware, Maryland, Kentucky, and Missouri. Now here, plantations were more scarce, and cotton cultivation was almost non-existent. Tobacco was the main crop here, as it was in the Middle South, and um, there was more grain production taking place. Unionists in this area would overcome the disunionists during the Civil War to help keep the region in the Union. So by 1850, slaves here were about 17% of the population, with an average of five slaves per slaveholder. By 1850, over 21% of the border south's blacks were free, and they accounted for 46% of the overall total of free blacks in the south. Thus, if you were free and black and you were living in the south, you were likely to live in the border states. 22% of the white families here owned slaves. Finally, the border south had about 6% of all southerners who owned more than 20 slaves, in, and in total, 1% of the south's ultra-wealthy lived here. But this area produced about 50% of the South's industrial products. So the border region wasn't the wealthiest part of the South. 
Um, not by a long shot, but it was the most industrial of the regions. Now for the Middle South. This area was Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Arkansas. Each of these states had one section within it that resembled the border region and one region that resembled the Lower South. Further, there was some industrial production that was taking place here, contrary to common belief. Um, for example, there was the uh, Tritigar Ironworks in Virginia, and they used slave labor instead of paid labor, as was done in the North, but it was a factory. Now, this is an interesting region when it comes to the secession movement, as the Unionists prevailed here up until the war began. Um, once Lincoln showed his hand and it was revealed that he meant to use violence to force states to remain in the Union, um, the, support, the supporters of the original Constitution, constitutional interpretation prevailed in this region. As for plantations, there were many of them in eastern Virginia and western Tennessee. By 1850, um, slaves were 30% of the population, with an average of eight slaves per slaveholder. 36% of the white families owned slaves, 14% of the ultra-wealthy in the South lived here, and 32% of all of those who owned more than 20 slaves resided in this region. The Lower South was comprised of South Carolina, Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Texas. Most of the slaves in the South lived in this region, in the Cotton Belt, or the Black Belt of the Deep South. Plantations were prevalent, cotton was king here, and it accounted for about 95% of the South's cotton, and almost all of its sugar, its rice, and its indigo. It was in this region that pro-secession forces would prevail once Lincoln was elected. By 1850, slaves accounted for 47% of the population, with an average of 12 slaves per slaveholder. Here you had less than uh, 2% of the blacks were free, only 15% of the South's free blacks lived in this region. 43% of the whites or white families owned slaves. And um, of all who owned more than 20 slaves in the South, 62% lived here. So 85% of the ultra-wealthy in the South lived in this section. Okay, so let's discuss the so-called peculiar institution. Specifically, let's look at the planter aristocracy. The South was ruled politically and economically by wealthy plantation owners. In 1850, only 1,733 families owned more than 100 slaves, yet these families dominated Southern politics. In the South, these planters carried on the so-called cavalier traditions of early Virginia. Now, we discussed cavalier culture in Season 1, so be sure to check out the episode on Southern culture there. One of the ways this was reflected was through the South's focus on military service and the creation in various areas of military academies. Its elite culture included chivalry as part and parcel of their daily lives. There was also the plantation system. This required heavy investment of capital into slave labor. Thus, many of the wealthy Southern families might indeed be wealthy in land and slaves, but in monetary terms, perhaps they were not as wealthy as you would have expected. Of course, investing in slaves was risky. They could die of disease, injury, they could run away. Another problem was um, of the plantation system was the fact that this was a one-crop economy. And what I mean by that is that each plantation, for the most part, specialized in one crop. It might be tobacco or cotton, but they usually only grew one crop. 
This discouraged diversification in the agricultural industry. Now, another problem, at least in the eyes of Southerners, was the fact that the North made huge profits at their expense. The middlemen in this entire system were often Northerners, bankers, agents, and shippers. All of the people in the middle between the Southern planters and the markets, especially overseas markets, tended to be Northerners. Uh, so the South, they complained about Northern middlemen, and they resented the fact that they were so dependent on Northern manufacturing markets as well as Northern shippers. Now, a negative aspect of the plantation system is the fact that it tended to um, repel large-scale European immigration. Instead, if someone was going to immigrate to the United States, in general, they went to the North. Evidence of this can be seen in the 1860 population figures. 4.4% of foreign-born Americans were part of the South's population in 1860, while 18.7% were in the North. Part of this reason was that the South, in the South you had slave labor. Now, some historians would say slave labor was cheaper, but I would disagree with that insofar as the upfront costs for slaves um, for slave labor was not cheap. You had to buy the slaves. Um, furthermore, you had to feed them. You had to clothe them. You had to house them, none of which was particularly cheap, even if the housing and the clothing weren't exactly of first-class standards. Nonetheless, slave labor was the system being used in the South, and that meant you were unlikely to find work there at least not in the agricultural sector. Fertile land was definitely too expensive for most immigrants, and these immigrants were unfamiliar with cotton production, which was the industry in the South at this time, especially the Deep South. So what can we say about slavery itself? Um, about 4 million slaves lived in the United States by 1860, a number that had quadrupled since 1800. Now, as I mentioned earlier, importation of slaves was legally ended in 1808, although there was certainly a black market in slaves that were being brought in from outside the United States. Now, while thousands of slaves were smuggled into the country, the increase in the slave population was mostly due to natural reproduction. Slave owners often rewarded slave women for having multiple children, as, of course, those children could then be sold off at some point for a profit. Another aspect of this was the fact that slave owners fathered a sizable mulatto slave population, most of whom remained slaves. Furthermore, slaves were seen as valuable assets and a primary source of wealth. Thus, you had slave markets and slaves were auctioned off. This was one of the most revolting aspects of the slave system, as families were often separated due to the owner simply wanting to make a profit, or even maybe due to bankruptcy. This was also probably the greatest psychological horror induced by slavery. As historian Walter Johnson points out in his study of the antebellum slave market, titled Soul by Soul, Life Inside the Antebellum Slave Market, the ending of the international slave trade for the United States did not mean slavery would wither away due to low birth rates and high mortality. In the United States, slaves did not suffer the brutality they suffered in places like the Caribbean Sugar Islands or in Brazil. Instead, any expansion of slavery into the western states would come about through the forced relocation of American-born slaves. Thus, between 1800 and the Civil War, about one million enslaved people were forcibly relocated from the Upper South to the Lower South. In other words, the creation of a domestic slave trade. Okay, just a brief side note for a moment. Um, I want to discuss the price of slaves and its relationship to cotton. Again, according to Walter Johnson, 
The slave trade in the antebellum period followed the world cotton economy. As that economy boomed, so did the slave trade. In the bust years, the slave trade went bust. The price of slaves tracked the price of cotton to such a degree, Johnson notes, quote, the price of slaves could be determined by multiplying the price of cotton by 10,000, end quote. Thus, seven cents per pound of cotton yielded a price of $700 for a slave. Furthermore, between 1820 and 1860, um, the slave trade, both urban and rural, was a major portion of the southern economy. Again, Johnson notes that in the slave-exporting regions of the antebellum south, the, proceed, the proceeds from the sale of slaves was equal to about 15% of the region's staple crop economy. Quote, As those people passed through the trade, representing something close to half a billion dollars in property, they spread wealth wherever they went. Much of the capital that funded the traders' speculations had been borrowed from banks and had to be repaid with interest, and all of it had to be moved through commission-taking factory houses and bills of exchange back and forth between the eastern seaboard and the emerging southwest. And the slaves, in whose bodies that money congealed as it moved south, had to be transported, housed, clothed, fed, and cared for during the one to three months it took to sell them. Some of them were insured in transit, some few others covered by life insurance. Their sales had to be notarized, and the sellers taxed. Those hundreds of thousands of people were revenue to the cities and states where they were sold, and profits in the pockets of landlords, provisioners, physicians, and insurance agents long before they were sold. The most recent estimate of the size of this ancillary economy is 13.5% of the price per person, tens of millions of dollars over the course of the antebellum period, end quote. So as you can see, when the idea of abolition was discussed, it caused a lot of economic anxiety for Americans, not only in the South, but in the North as well. Seeing as how the banking and the insurance industry was often headquartered out of northern cities. And of course, as we've mentioned, the middlemen in all this were often northerners. Now as for punishment, it could often be brutal, but it was not always and everywhere violent. The new western areas were often the harshest for slaves, places like Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. Again, for slaves, life in the United States was often not anywhere near as brutal as it had been and was in places like the Caribbean. But nonetheless, it was a difficult life indeed. Okay, so now let's discuss culture. As there was indeed a slave culture that developed. First, elements of West African culture, such as languages, oral traditions, music, religious practices, family patterns, all of these remained a part of the American slave community. They didn't simply abandon these things when they arrived in the United States. An outgrowth of the fact that slave families were often broken up was the idea that family ties could often be informal and extended. An idea arose which some people have referred to as fictive kin. Um, this is where members of a community might be considered family, even though they were not related by blood. Children were primarily raised by their mothers, who often dominated the home in slave quarters. Now, an important part of the culture that slaves developed was the oral tradition. Remember, teaching slaves to read was illegal in much of the South, so slaves developed alternate ways to spread their culture. After the workday was over, the slaves often got together and shared stories of their hopes for eventual liberation, amongst other topics. This oral tradition was passed on in several languages, including Gullah, 
Pidgin English, and Creole. Certain stories, such as Breer Rabbit, were popular and instructive on how to survive slavery's oppressive nature. You also had music. Um, so the rhythmic complexities of Africa were incorporated into music and the drum rhythms played by slaves. Because slave owners sometimes banned the use of drums, fearing slaves were sending subversive messages, clapping and patting juba, slapping various parts of the body along with clapping, was a popular replacement. The banjo, an African instrument, was used regularly. Even the European violin, or fiddle, was adapted by slaves and became a staple instrument. Eventually, the musical elements developed and employed by slaves would find their ways into musical genres such as the blues, jazz, and even rock and roll. So how did whites respond to this slave culture? Did they ignore it? No, truthfully, they were fascinated by it. There are a ton of books on this, including uh, the slave narratives developed during the Great Depression by the Works Progress Administration, or the WPA. Historians such as Dale Cockrell's Demons of Disorder, Early Blackface Minstrels and Their World, or Eugene Genovese and his monumental work, um, Roll, Jordan, Roll, are worth also worth reading. But I'm going to use historian Thaddeus Russell's excellent work, A Renegade History of the United States, as my main source here because he did an incredible job of synthesizing a ton of these works. And also because this is not really my area of specialty. Okay, so let's talk briefly about um, a man named Dan Emmett, one of the people credited with creating the Blackface Minstrel Show. According to historians who have studied the minstrel shows and antebellum slave culture, Emmett knew what the abolitionists would not say and what our textbooks, unfortunately, still keep secret all the way down to today. When Emmett rubbed burnt cork onto his white face and let his body move on stage in ways he never would offstage, he was in on the dirty secret of slavery. Slaves enjoyed pleasures that were forbidden to white people. He knew, oddly, especially to our modern mind, that slaves were the envy in some ways, some ways, of white America. Now stay with me here. I know this, this is probably the most controversial part of this episode. Um, whites imitating blacks is America's oldest pastime. It started on the decks of ships bringing slaves to the New World, where European crewmen gleefully joined the dances of African hostages, and it continued on the plantations in the South. It was there that both masters and overseers were known to partake in the revelries in the slave quarters. Um, remember, we mentioned earlier that slave owners often fathered children with female slaves. As Russell notes, it was, however, the development of steamboats and railroads in the early 19th century that allowed, for the first time, white Americans from all over the country to travel south in large numbers and see black people in person. As giant paddle-wheel boats started taking passengers down south from cities such as Pittsburgh and Cincinnati to places like St. Louis, Memphis, and New Orleans, suddenly white entertainers imitating black songs and dances became a common sight on the streets of major American cities. <laughs> By the 1840s, um, when you get trains going south, a curious northerner could take a train from, say, New York City to Pittsburgh, then a steamboat to the cotton fields of Mississippi, and even more easily see the sights, so to speak. Ethnographers estimate that by 1843, characters in blackface had appeared in over 20,000 stage performances. Now, the odd thing about all of it, and I mentioned it briefly um, in one of, I think it was the final episode of season one, qualification to be seen as a good American citizen meant one had to distance oneself 
from everything African culture represented. So white Americans allowed themselves to enjoy this culture vicariously through these performances. As Russell himself notes, this is not an endorsement for slavery. It is, however, an argument that, oddly, many of the freedoms enjoyed by Americans today, uh, many parts of our culture, including music, that we enjoy today, at one point were only available to slaves, and that in the early republic, citizenship was terribly constrained. Further, slaves and their descendants created a culture that is both envied and resented by not only white Americans, but by people around the world. Now, there is a ton of good information in Russell's book, uh, but I'm only going to focus on a few items, because otherwise we'll be here, this, this would be like a five-hour podcast or something. Um, but I'm going to focus on just a few items, starting with an analysis of the minstrel songs, much of which have been criticized for occasional references to, quote, grotesque Negro features, end quote. Now, there certainly are, from time to time, those sorts of references. However, the minstrel songs that were written during slavery prior to, say, 1861, far more often made reference to a longing for beautiful slave women who lived in the, on the plantation. So here's a quote from Benjamin Hanby's Darling Nellie Gray. This was a very popular song in the antebellum period, and a song which I'm going to play for you in just a moment. Quote, Oh, my poor Nellie Gray, they have taken you away, and I'll never see my darling anymore. I'm sitting by the river, and I'm weeping all the day, for you've gone from the old Kentucky shore. End quote. Interestingly, the author is comparing the beauty of the land to that of slave women, in this instance particularly Nellie Gray. Now, he wasn't the only one, nor was this the only song to make mention of the beauty of slave women. So having said that, let's hear the song. I'll see you on the other side. I was in the land of coffin, old town, 
you enjoyed that. It's a really good song, I think. Um, another song that did this was Stephen Foster's Melinda May. Quote, Lovely Melinda is bright as the beam. No snowdrop was ever more fair. She smiles like the roses that bloom round a stream and sings like the birds in the air. End quote. Now, to the 21st century ear, these probably sound archaic or, I don't know, fairly conventionally romantic. However, as Russell notes, to the Victorian American, such an expression of physical desire, no matter how it was phrased, was seen as, quote, disreputable, lowbrow, and black, end quote. And yet, black-based minstrelsy, minstrelsy was extremely popular. It was, however, also disreputable and criticized, not for being racist, but because it was seen as erotic, free, and wild. In essence, the establishment criticized this pop culture for being too free. You weren't supposed to act like this. Not if you wanted to be respectable. So, so disreputable was blackface that in New York City, a group of reformers purchased a theater which catered to blackface and immediately converted it to an evangelical chapel. This keeps um, the keepers, I should say, of permissible behavior of the establishment and its organs in the media at that time, newspapers, were adamantly against blackface performances. The Boston Post in 1838 noted that the two most popular figures in the world at that time were Queen Victoria, the representative of bourgeois rep repression, and Jim Crow. And the creator of Jim Crow, T.D. Rice, claimed at the time to know what was really in the heart of the Victorians. Quote, I'm so glad that I'm an N-word, I'm not going to say that word, and don't you wish you was too, for then you'd gain popularity by jumping Jim Crow. Now, my brothers, I do not think it's right that you should laugh at them who happen to be white, because it's their misfortune, and they'd spend every dollar and if, if they only could be gentlemen of color. It almost break my heart to see them envy me, end quote. Before we move on to other aspects, here is another famous minstrel song, Dixieland. All right, Chris, again here, over my voice, do your magic and play Dixieland. All right, so what is this song all about? Today it's associated with Southern racism, but that's not what Dan Emmett, the, songer, the songwriter most often created, credited with creating the song, had on his mind when he wrote it. Emmett was expressing a desire to experience the freedom afforded to slaves, at least culturally. Now, I know that sounds weird, but again, stick with me. For whites, the minstrel shows represented an outlet. According to the literary critic W.T. Lamon Jr., as quoted in Russell's book, slave culture represented, quote, pleasure and freedom to blackface performers and fans, and danger to good citizens. It might sound odd to us now, but to Americans in the antebellum period, some at least, American freedom was both burdensome and restrictive. Many Americans who were moving to the frontier areas, for them, um, freedom meant one was free to work hard and to work constantly. And that's what you did on the frontier. You had to cut down trees and shape them into logs, and then you had to use them to build your own home. You couldn't, you know, you didn't go and have a home built. You did it yourself. So for Americans in the 19th century, life on the frontier was one of near constant work. Well, hard work was certainly necessary to survive life in a pre-industrial society. Americans, however, worked harder and scorned leisure more than any other people in the world at that point. Here's the opinion of one European visitor to the United States in the 19th century. The author, Francis Grund, he commented on what some 
that time called the American disease of work. He said that for the American, work was the source of happiness, and without it, they were wretched. <laughs> oh, how times have changed. Now, from the founding of the colonies in Virginia and Massachusetts, everything from school primers to newspaper editorials, they, all these things expressed the idea that work was to be near to God, and um, only the wretched were idle. However, white minstrels and others, they knew a secret, the secret of slavery. Okay, so now we're getting into the controversial area of this episode, as if we hadn't already gone a little controversial. Hopefully you'll stick with me because this is important. I'm going to use some primary sources here, particularly the Federal Writers Project. Now, what was that, you ask? During the Great Depression, the U.S. government sent out workers to interview former slaves and record their memories. Many of them told, of course, stories of whippings, sadistic overseers, and loved ones being sold away, and most certainly of the desire to be free. But you also hear many of them, in fact a majority of ex-slaves, offering an evaluation of slavery that was downright positive, and many unabashedly wanted to return to their slave days. Here's one quote. Well, sir, you want to talk about them good old days back yonder in slavery time, does you? I call them good old days because I have never had as much sense. End quote. Now, some historians refer to these interviews as problematic. Why? I believe it's because we expect the former slaves to totally condemn those times, not to speak of them in a positive light in any way, and yet they did, at least some aspects. Now, some might say these people were simply looking back at their younger days through rose-colored glasses, the same way many of us look back on our youth and long for the, quote, good old days, end quote. However, I don't think we can simply dismiss their testimony as such, at least not in my opinion. Now, that was by a slave, a former slave named Quattlebaum, and here's more of his testimony. Quote, I's worked harder since the war betwixt the North and South than I ever worked under my master and missus. My master wouldn't have no overseer, because he, say, overseers would whip his N-words and didn't uh, allow nobody, white or black, to do that. If his people had to be whipped, he was given to do that himself, and then they wouldn't be hurt much. Master liked to see his slaves happy and singing about the place, end quote. How about another slave? Mary Frances Brown, born a slave in South Carolina, said, They were happy times back then. I ain't never seen uh, uh, like no time since in freedom. I'm sorry. I ain't never seen the likes no time in freedom. Them were times to live, end quote. Time and again, you can read testimony of former slaves talking about how things changed once the war came, and, quote, nothing was right no more, end quote, as another slave, former slave, William Curtis said. So what was the secret? While they wouldn't admit it publicly, privately slave owners acknowledged that they had less power over their slaves than the employer of free labor had over his workers. Slaves didn't care about their productivity or the quality of their work. They weren't interested in doing in what they were doing. Historians of the Old South are now in agreement that slaves did not share the devotion to work that was common amongst white Americans. And this is the key to the story. As historian Thaddeus Russell notes, the beautiful, the beautiful irony of slavery was that it guaranteed food, shelter, clothing, health care, and child care for the enslaved, and even allowed for the acquisition of luxuries and money, believe it or not. Except 
that it did not have the requirement of self-denial that was part and parcel of being a, quote, free worker. Slaves had ways to get out of work. The most common was to feign illness. According to records on one plantation, slaves were ill about one-seventh of the time. Another plantation, one which had 30 slaves, reported 398 total sick days in just one year. Sick days tended to peak on Saturdays and during the planting and harvesting seasons. In other words, when there was the most work. If they had been ordinary Americans, these people would not have gotten away with this behavior. They would have either lost their job or had their pay docked. And of course, they would, they would have been shamed. Slaves, in a way, pioneered the idea of a vacation. They pioneered the idea of the weekend. Remember, I just said they tended to be sick on Saturdays. And, of course, Sundays was church day. So they were kind of giving us the whole idea of having Saturday and Sunday off. As one ex-slave noted, a man named Lorenzo Ivey said, um, quote, Sometimes slaves just run away to the woods for a week or two to get a rest from the field, and then they'd come back, end quote. And this absence from work was called truancy, and it was rampant. Plantations whose records have survived show slaves disappeared for days, weeks, months, and even years at a time. Furthermore, just as many slave owners failed to punish their truant slaves as did those who did punish them. This suggests slaves themselves had a sort of power over their masters. It was this truancy that led whites to believe there was a natural inferiority to blacks. This is where the idea that blacks were lazy came from. This idea that a dislike for work was natural to blacks was discounted by W.E.B. Du Bois, who said that it was inevitable, it was an inevitable consequence of using forced labor. Quote, All observers spoke of the fact that the slaves were slow and churlish. They wasted material, and they malingered at their work. Of course they did. This was not racial, but economic. It was the answer of any group of laborers forced down to the last ditch. They might be made to work continuously, but no power could make them work well. End quote. Du Bois went even further, suggesting this was an advantage that blacks had over whites who worked for themselves. The slave, unlike whites, did not believe work was better than life. Where whites valued work over life, slaves valued life over work. Some economic historians have calculated that not only did slaves work with less intensity, but they worked less often. On average, northern farmers worked 400 more hours per year than did slaves. In the 19th century, Americans were probably the hardest working people on earth. The average white American who found himself or herself working in a factory worked on average 14-hour days, six days a week. 100-hour work weeks was not uncommon. Slaves, believe it or not, worked much less and took time off whenever they wanted to. So, was slavery brutally violent? Yes. But life in 19th century America was violent. Corporal punishment was not only encouraged, it was frequently practiced in American homes in the 19th century. Parents and teachers used the rod and the whip, as well as the hand, to discipline their children. Schoolmasters not only used the rod, but it was not uncommon for them to beat their charges with a leather whip or even a cat of nine tails. Two-thirds of the child-rearing books that were published in the 19th century advocated the use of corporal punishment, and governmental authorities rarely took action against those who did. Thus, Beatings weren't only used by slave masters for slaves. This was a far different society than the one we live in today. Now, having said that, I am not condoning slavery. 
Um, as hopefully you remember, I am an anarchist, an anarcho-capitalist in the tradition of Murray Rothbard. I don't believe in violence or government. Um, I believe in the freedom of the individual and, of course, the free market. Slavery is anathema to my very being. However, as I hope I've said before, history is not binary. Um, it's not just black and white, good and bad. There are rarely bad guys and good guys. No one was wearing a white hat to signify they were the good guy or a black hat that they were the bad guy. You know, this isn't Star Wars. And if you know me, I love Star Wars. It's not. It's it's much more like George R. R. Martin's series, A Song of Ice and Fire. There's just no real good guy and bad guy. There's just people, and people often have good and bad in them. Okay, um, so that's it for today. This turned out to be way longer, um, like I said, than I, I had intended for it to be. Hopefully, I didn't get too far off tangent here, and I hope you learned something new. Our next episode will cover the demographic changes that the United States was going through, as well as the first Industrial Revolution. So finally, we're getting closer and up to the eve of of the war between the United States and Mexico. I know it's been a bit of a long haul, but hopefully you've got a deeper understanding of antebellum America and the people who are going to fight this war against Mexico. So if you enjoyed this episode, as always, please give us a five-star review over at iTunes. takes only a second. And if you've got a little extra time, I would be extremely grateful if you left a five-star review. Those really do help other interested people find the show. Um, If you have questions or comments, please feel free to email me. The email address is sean at theamericanhistorypodcast.com. You can also find me on Twitter, as I said earlier, at AmericanHisCast. I haven't received much in the way of email lately, so please do email me, even if it's just to say hello. I do welcome questions, and I love answering those sorts of email. I also welcome any comments on the show. So until next time, good day. Good day.